a Podcast One production. Punchy, whacked, power, influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> Well, our next guest is Associate Professor Caroline Ford, who is a cancer researcher within the School of Women's and Children's Health at the Lowy Cancer Research Centre. But much more than that, of course. Caroline is an amazing user of Twitter and she set up a fascinating book club, which she's going to tell us about today among like-minded readers around the world. Steminist Book Club, in fact, which is a fabulous name quite apart from anything else. I can't wait to hear more about that and her incredible work that she does around women's health. Yes. And we're going to talk frankly about all those bits of the body you're not supposed to talk frankly about. It's lovely to have you here today, Carolyn. I wanted to ask you first up, what led a cancer researcher to set up something called the Steminist Book Club? Yes, well, that's an excellent question, Catherine, um, and probably a little bit unexpected, but I think probably because all of us are multidimensional, right? So just because I am a scientist does not mean that I don't love the arts, that I don't love reading, that I'm not a raging feminist, that I do not have interests outside science. And so being able to start this book club was just a wonderful opportunity to kind of marry two of my great loves, which is science, or well, three really, science, feminism, and reading. So yeah, it really stemmed from an idea that collective communities could actually uplift and empower people. So I was doing a lot of reading around feminism. I was reading a lot of nonfiction books outside of my scientific area and really finding that I didn't have anyone to discuss them with. I would sort of finish them, put them on my bedside table, maybe, you know, rant to my husband about them and then move on. And so... Which can get you so far. <laughs> you need a little bit more richness, That's don't right. You? And so then um, through the wonderful power of Twitter, I saw that a professor, Renee Ryan, from the University of Sydney, who I followed but had never met, had posted a picture of a book that she was reading called Inferior by Angela Sini, which is a fantastic book and I just finished reading it. So I sent her a message and said, oh my goodness, you know, isn't this a wonderful book? Maybe we could get together and have a, have a chat about it. And it just absolutely snowballed from there. That was on the 1st of January, 2018. And then I, I started a Twitter account and now there's, I think, almost 4,000 members worldwide that are part of this book club. And you do it online. Yeah, we do it online. So we have a new book that we choose about every two months and we have an online discussion using hashtags on Twitter, but also it's also sprouted sort of physical meetups as well. So we have meetups in, I think now about 15 cities worldwide, which have wow. sort of happened completely independently. So people you know, often message me and, and ask permission for you know starting a, a local pod or, or a local group, which you know, clearly I don't see is that I own this at all. You know, go for it. Absolutely. So our most recent group just started in Vancouver last week. We've got ones throughout Australia. There's one in Istanbul. There's a few in the UK. There, Yeah, one in Atlanta just started as well in the States. So yeah, it's, it's exciting. 
and they choose their own books. So you're not all 4,000 all looking at the same book at the same no, time. We're, we're actually all reading the same books, which ah. feels um, slightly dictatorship um, <laughs> in that I get to choose them. So I choose books that, that I have been suggested to me. And then there's now a lot of people reading them. And which so, is Caroline, what do we, Catherine and I, have to do <laughs> yeah. to encourage you to include accidental feminist and stop fixing mine's, women? Mine's been included. <gasps> in fact, it was one of the first ones, which was lovely. And, and in fact, I've, I knew very little about the network. But what I did know, of course, is that Caroline had been profiled in Hashtag Celebrating Women, which was an, a social media campaign that my co-author of Womenkind, Kirsten Ferguson, set up. And you were a very enthusiastic member of that and you loved reading about those little profiles of women. And that's how I'd come across this extraordinary, Not it's not a spin-off in any sense, but it's, a, it's an independent idea, but there are parallels. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, Celebrating Women was such a wonderful campaign and and a number of scientists and and women in medicine and across health were involved in that. And it was really heartening to see such a positive campaign. I was sort of a, a late adopter of Twitter. I only joined a couple of years ago on the prompting of of two women that I really admire in medicine. And it has absolutely changed my world. It has introduced me to so many fantastic progressive people. It has um, established collaborations in the research space that would never have happened before. It's led to, I think, you know, more research funding, a higher profile for the types of cancer that I study, and just so many great people that I would not have crossed paths with without that, that- media. So interesting to hear because Twitter in particular gets a terrible rap. You know, there's basically a whole lot of views about it being just a toxic space and people are abused and bullied and certainly that happens. But my experience of it is much more like your experience of it that actually you are able to discover and connect with people that you would never otherwise have come in contact with. And I have noticed because I follow quite a few women scientists and a few men, male scientists as well, the scientific community, because there's a lot of posts up there I can't understand at all. Biggest users of Twitter, yeah. scientists, yeah. academics and journalists, mm. apparently. Yeah, and politicians. So I think for a lot of scientists that are interested in changing policy in this country as well, Twitter is actually really important if you want to share the outcomes of your research, if you want to report back to not just the general public about the outcomes, but if you want to influence debate in politics around topics like women's health, which I study, that it's actually quite a powerful medium for that, which, again, surprised me coming from, you know, traditional academic background. Do you think also, though, because you're not just followed by other experts, that it's also a a way that you can educate Absolutely. And look, that's something that I'm really passionate about is trying to reduce the stigma around women's health and particularly around women's reproductive organs. Because as you know, I work on gynecological cancers, which are just horrendous diseases that affect far too many women around the world. And I believe a key component to why we have such poor survival from those cancers is actually because they are diagnosed really late and too late. And I think Part of that is because we are not aware of the symptoms, because women are not comfortable discussing anything that is abnormal about their menstrual cycle, anything abnormal around, you know, whether things are itchy, whether things are um, looking unusual, whether there's 
strange discharge. People, at least in Australia, I think, have a level of awkwardness and stigma about this. And highly educated women, you know, even in my own family, will confess to not necessarily being quite sure what the difference is between, you know, your cervix and your ovaries and what's the endometrium and all of these things that are fairly basic biology that we just don't talk about because it's awkward. Carolyn, where did this interest come from? So I guess kind of stepping back to how I got into science, I mean, I think all kids are sort of naturally curious about the world, but I was probably excessively so the the annoying questioner of why is this the case? Why are things happening that way? But then I was certainly brought up in a family where it was very clear from an early age that we all needed to do something that would improve the world. So strong sense of social justice, um, extreme aversion to anything that would only be for monetary good. And so there was always an expectation, I think, that my sister and I would go on to do something that would contribute to society. And science was just something that I naturally loved. When I started at university, I was sort of shocked. I was a terrible student in first year. I tell this all the time now to my own students. I failed first year chemistry because a lot of science at that stage was taught in a really dry manner and I could not see the connection to people at all. So it really wasn't until about my third year of university where I started to do courses that had a health component that were actually about like fascinating bacteria and viruses and outbreaks and you could see the impact on global health and you could see the impact that science and research was having in improving outcomes of those diseases that I got completely hooked. And so I went on to do my honours research year and then my PhD in the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney in their virology department. So it was an active research but also diagnostic space. So you could see daily the impact that science was having on people's lives. And so that hooked me early. I was looking at viruses associated with cancer and then the cancer side of things sort of drew me over and it progressed from there. Were you ever tempted to become a doctor yourself? I am the most squeamish person, so I faint, (laughs) quite honestly, at the sight of blood. I I now actually um, do attend surgeries quite often because it's a fascinating and important part of our research program, but I am in the very far corner of the room uh, (laughs) and um, and I really struggle with with that side of things. I hear you. (laughs) Do you think that having more women working in not just science in general, but particularly in women's health. And when I was first pregnant, wanted a female obstetrician. There were two in the whole of Sydney at that time and their books were, you know, full forever. But now it's it's much more usual to find women in those areas. And does that, do you think, have an influence on the fact that it wasn't until like 2009 that we actually understood what the clitoris looks like, what it's, we actually kind of investigated it thoroughly and also more emphasis on the female body rather than seeing the female body as a kind of abnorm of the norm, which is the male body. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think traditionally medicine and science are sectors and industries that have been led by men, designed by men, and in general, the men studied the things that they found to be most interesting. And so clearly that's going to have a gender bias. What is changing is there are 
much more women now training in medicine and in science, in particularly in the biological or health sciences. We have a majority of women at university at the postgraduate level now, and we actually have had for a long time. So when people talk about this kind of rubbish idea of a pipeline issue, that is not the case in my field. We've got plenty of women. We've had plenty of women for a long time. The problem is the system and the systemic barriers people are coming up against sort of in their early to mid-career stages. What are they? Mm. What are the main ones and what have you seen? Yeah, so look, so many. And again, it's really because the system is incredibly hierarchical. Medicine is is very much about um, where you're at and what level and huge levels of respect and what is um, allowed, let's say, at each level of the career. There are major barriers in just workload and timing of things. So there's there's huge inflexibility around the hours. So it's very hard for anyone with any caring responsibility whatsoever if a clinical meeting is routinely scheduled for 7am or 5pm, for example, which continues to be the case in many areas. It's also a highly competitive and very fast-moving field. So when you do take time out of science, perhaps to go off and have a child, you need to stay up to date. There are probably in my field... 50 to 100 research papers published a week. If I don't pay attention, I can very quickly lose touch. I can very quickly lose my edge and my ability to contribute actual useful research to the field. So on top of that, there is a fair degree of sexual harassment and bullying in academia as there is in any sector and a huge lack of role models. So something that, again, is not specific to STEM or to medicine. But at my institution that I work at, for example, we have never had a female dean of medicine for the entire history of of the university. We've just announced our new dean who is an outstanding individual. But again, it's, it's another man. All of our vice deans are all men. You know, the leadership that we see on a daily basis is a very uh, specific type. One thing you said to me some time ago when we were talking about um, sexism and attitudes and bias, and you said scientists pride themselves on being very logical and rational. So the very idea that they could be biased is anathema to men. They won't even accept it. That's a very hard thing to tackle, isn't it? absolutely, because that is how we are trained. We are supposed to be incredibly logical. We all pride ourselves on being very clever. You know, we're all very proud of the fact that we're brilliant minds. And so just the, you know, the possibility that we could be so base as to be biased is just offensive, honestly, to a lot of scientists. But it's complete rubbish because scientists are human. We're all human. We're all raised in society. There's been great evidence to show that a lot of scientific research itself is incredibly biased due to the people running the research. So, yeah, it's, I think it's an added challenge that we have in our field because, because a lot of our um, very senior leaders in the field really struggle with the idea that this could have happened in our industry, that we would be so similar to everyone else that it could happen, you know, that this is a shocking thing. And also I think there is a real issue that... It's a confronting idea to think that maybe you got to your position of power because of some privilege and some system that actually assisted you and you didn't actually get there because you were the most brilliant person. So that's a difficult thing to accept. You mentioned the issues, of course, for women in academia um, striking a certain point in their career when they've got caring responsibilities, uh, most typically small children, but of course we know caring can also involve other kinds of, of forms of care. How did you 
manage that period? But well, you're still managing it, of course. You've got two small children, but just tell us how that panned out. Yeah, look, I'm still in the thick of it. So I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So we have a constant stream of um, sickness and uh, various issues going on with the kids. Um, So I actually hate the advice that is often given to get a supportive partner because I think it's really, <laughs> really unhelpful for people. But I do have to absolutely acknowledge that I do have an incredibly supportive mm. partner. I will say he is Swedish, so he was well-trained in a society that uh, has a very different view around raising kids and around gender equity. And so um, he has a very flexible job. So he works full-time, but he works freelance and it is flexible. So we have that flexibility within our partnership that it actually means that we can make things work. I also have my parents who are in Sydney and they, like a lot of active grandparents, helped out a huge amount when the kids were really little. But also I have to, you know, absolutely acknowledge my university. So the university sector in general actually has outstanding parental leave policies. So I was, I received eight and a half months full pay from my job uh, with each of my children. And that is remarkable and it made an enormous difference. And, you know, there are certainly different universities and different medical research institutes that have better policies in this space than others. And there's a lot of work being done to improve that across the board. But I I feel very fortunate that I I had that safety net. How many male academics take advantage of that parental leave? Very few, and we've actually done that analysis at at my institution as part of a big program that's happening across the country at the moment called the SAGE Science Australia Gender Equity Athena Swan Program. So we've had, you know, less than 10 at my institution in the last couple of years, but a major change that happened and is happening at most universities, I understand, is that maternity leave is being changed to parental leave finally. And so it's actually making that not only possible, but also, you know, changing the view of of who can actually take that space. Because it strikes me that as long as taking time out means that you then have a whole lot of catching up to do in terms of career, that the fact that it's offered is awesome. But the problem is you can see why men would make a decision that that might be advantageous for them not to take it. Absolutely. And there was a fascinating bit of research that came out, I think, two years ago, which actually compared Scandinavia and Sweden, which, you know, we always herald as this fantastic example where women can take a long period of time. And as you know, it's shared generally between Mm. the mother and the father, and it's a use it or lose it. So both take time off. But Traditionally, the woman takes 12 months and the man will take maybe six months or the secondary carer. They compared the impact of that of women in science compared to women in science in the United States, where, as you know, there are no maternity leave provisions and most female scientists in the US return to work two to four weeks after giving birth, which is shocking. Mm. But what they found, interestingly, when they tracked career progression was that actually it had more of a negative effect on career progression for the Swedish scientists. And the reasoning given was because they were out of the game for so long that they had lost that momentum, they had lost touch, and often because they would have multiple children, potentially, and it would be a longer period of time. Whereas the American women 
got back in quickly and, you know, God knows we're probably dying. Exhausted. Absolutely exhausted. But they were back in the game very quickly and therefore they progressed. And I found that deeply troubling um, but really interesting. So you've got to change. You've got to change more than the provisions, right, for parenting leave. You've got to change our expectations of what a career is, how linear it is and so on. Um, Interesting, same sort of studies have shown that in Germany at one stage you could have three years of of leave, uh, parenting leave, Not clearly not all paid, but you did get a certain amount of pay. It was Mm. very generous, hugely detrimental for women. So um, there are some, you know, swings and roundabouts with Mm. these things. Well, I think the problem there is, isn't it, that it's still seen as something women need to take responsibility for and as long as that continues, anything we do is just going to be either we're, we're facing women with what we call choice, which is a horrible choice between absolute exhaustion, sending your very small child off to be cared by someone for by somewhere else or putting your career back for the rest of your life. Great choice, people. Yeah, not not exactly. <laughs> or not have children at all. Not exactly innovative either, is it? No. From, say, employers and certainly businesses, much less academia, that always say they're on the cutting edge of innovation and disruption. Not so much. Carmen, I always hear, almost invariably, when I speak at events these days, someone will say, look, girls won't study maths and science. We yeah. have a real problem with girls. The problem is girls. It's not anything else. It's girls. I find that incredibly frustrating. I imagine you do. And you're a superstar of STEM. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and also some of your reflections on that whole issue? Sure. So Superstars of STEM was a really wonderful program initiated by Science and Technology Australia, was launched uh, a couple of years ago, and they selected 30 women from across science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. So it was a really diverse group of women in different industries. And they gave the 30 of us um, some incredible training in things like how to influence on social media, how to engage with politicians, how to collaborate. Uh, yeah, and a lot of media training. And then they put us in situations and places where we could actually use that. So we received invitations. We had, you know, a breakfast with the chief scientists of this country. We met politicians. We actually could speak to those people, which probably most of us would not have had that opportunity at that career stage. And they also got us to go and speak to high schools and primary schools across the country. And there was some ridiculous amount of outreach that we did. Most most of us did five to 10 talks over the over a period of 12 months. And so they were to entire school assemblies. And probably for a lot of people in the audience, it might've been the first time that they actually heard from a scientist. And possibly from a scientist that was a little bit more relatable to them. So someone that wasn't an older white male, you know, a crazy scientist with a Bunsen burner in the lab (laughs) coat, actually someone that was doing field work, looking at native Australian mammals or someone that was doing laboratory research or someone that was an archaeologist and was spending a lot of time travelling around the world investigating things. And so I think we were selected because we were real and we were authentic and we are all clearly passionate about our jobs because it is a really cool career. That is the (laughs) thing that I want people to understand. It is an absolute privilege to do this job. It is super fun. You get to just investigate and answer questions that come to your mind and work with the most amazing people and travel the world. So I just can't fathom why anyone would not want a career in science is, is my problem. So getting to your question of, you know, absolutely this idea of, oh, the 
girls don't want to study hard science and they don't want to study maths. Again, I think that that is rubbish. I think a large part of it is lack of role models. And then I think obviously there's been a lot of discussion about that, how you can make young kids engaged in science. So actually doing projects that have real world applicability. That's the key to me. Involve the impact that science, technology, engineering, maths actually have on people. You've got to show how it is related to the world we live in rather than just some esoteric sort of idea. Well, you you almost said it yourself when you talked about when you were in your first year and you failed chemistry because it was so dry as dust, so disconnected from reality. And I often think women... Um, not intrinsically, but because of the kind of lives we have to live, are very concrete thinkers. You know, it's got to be in the real world. It's got to have a practical application for us to really enjoy it. And one of the reasons we like the humanities, even though people see it as being arty-farty, is actually it's stories about human beings. It's emotionally based. We're trained from birth to be very attuned to the emotional temperature that is around us. Part of that is a survival mechanism, but we're trained, you know, we're the emotional caretakers. And if you take all, drain all the emotion out of something, it's very, very hard for us to get engaged with That's it. right. And that's something that I try to dispel, this myth that science is dry and that it is only logical because actually science is incredibly creative. And this is sort of what I try to tell people all the time. It's probably one of the most creative industries. You really have to think very strategically and think very big picture and be inspired by what's around you to identify problems and come up with solutions. So creativity is probably the number one skill, creativity and curiosity. And who doesn't have those naturally? And also, I think we are finding out more, um, an early education academic at Macquarie Uni recently looked at how we teach girls mm. science. So it's not even about, and I completely understand uh, Jane's point, you know, how we've socialised young boys and girls. It's also about how they're taught. And there was real bias in the way those teachers, men and women, taught physics and chemistry to different cohorts. So we know that that, and by the way, there is no gender maths gap in China. No, no. or in, they would in, or in India you. or in many other parts <laughs> of the world. You're exactly right. And it gets back to the point that all of us are human, including teachers, and we all have our own gender biases about what we think a scientist is, what we think a mathematician is, who can go on to those types of studies at university. So um, one of my fellow superstars of STEM actually has a fantastic idea, which is essentially to run out a very similar program to the Athena Swan program in the higher education sector, which is looking at gender bias and making universities you know, really accountable for their programs and, and progress in this area. She's really keen to do it at a high school level and actually look at numbers of boys and girls in different classes, how people are being encouraged, what the outcomes are, and actually make that transparent and obvious, which I think would be an interesting idea. One thing I think we also perhaps don't pay enough attention to is how there have been women from a very early period of history who have invented, discovered, made huge uh, leaps forward but have been almost, well, I think, deliberately disappeared from their own achievement. Ada Lovelace, who invented the first computing machine, and she was Lord Byron's daughter. I find that an absolutely fascinating piece of trivia, actually. Um, talk about marrying arts and science. Those two did it through the generations. And I read and included in my book a horrible story about how when they were looking for the first astronauts to go to the moon, they tested a whole lot of pilots, male and female, and there were far less female pilots, but of the female pilots they tested, the vast majority of 
them passed all the tests, but they refused to send any of them into space. Um, and the reason given, one uh, astronaut, John Glenn, was fairly straightforward. He said, it's just not according to our social norms. The others all made jokes about how they'd like 110 pounds of recreational payload. I mean, it's awful. And this is only in the 60s. This is within living memory. And we discount the effect of that recent history, that scorn and mockery on women who had and girls who had ambition. And and we learned, I think, to keep that ambition to ourselves under wraps because we knew we'd be mocked for it. The, the fact that medical research, so research on new drug trials and so on, was not even conducted on women. So we didn't even know how women's symptoms for heart attack actually manifested until relatively recently. Yeah. It's astonishing. And that's absolutely the case. And again, it's back to your point, Jane, that women's bodies are kind of perceived as not the norm or as messy and as complicated. So even to this day, many women are excluded from clinical trials if they are of a reproductive age. So that's a fairly large chunk of society that we are not even testing our drugs in. And I mean, there's very good reasons for a lot of these exclusions. However, it's always assumed that you'll get, get around to those women later and figure it out for them, but that rarely happens. And so, yes, it's a historical issue, but it's also ongoing in a lot of fields. And coming back to the discussion of astronauts, mm. I mean, we just had a few weeks ago a lot of excitement that it was going to be the first female spacewalk um, at the International Space Station, which then had to be cancelled at the last moment because they didn't have two spacesuits available in a size small. So not even that there were ones made for a woman's body. They were still male spacesuits, but there were no. There was only one size small. So the two women on the International Space Station couldn't go out at the same time. I mean, that to me is just ludicrous. Nobody <laughs> even thought about that. Like, it's weird. Given some of the things that you've outlined and some of those structural issues around career progression and so on, are you seeing that shift? Are your Steminist book club members giving you a cause for hope? In yeah, that absolutely, absolutely. And that's been really heartening because it can feel very isolated at times. So I'm lucky in that I am in an industry and a part of STEM that actually has a lot of women. And so I already had an incredible network. But if you are the lone woman in an engineering department or the lone woman in a tech firm or a startup, actually having access to other women around the world that are sharing the same sort of challenges, but more importantly, have come up with really great solutions because none of this, you know, none of us are encountering this for the first time. So one of the great outcomes of the Steminist Book Club has not only been that we get to read these books and discuss these issues, but we can share all these great successes and creative ideas and actually improve things for women, you know, across our sector, which is, you know, really exciting. So, yes, I'm, I'm an absolute optimist. I still, look, I encounter things that enrage me daily and I also have a wonderful sisterhood of women that I can vent that rage to and get support but also get practical advice on how to deal with those challenges. But overall very optimistic. Rage has come up again and again in these interviews and it's so interesting how many women now are talking about their anger. One of the things that outraged me when I was researching what I've just written was um, a thing called Yentl syndrome, which you probably know about, mm. which is all about how women's pain is discounted. Women, when they complain of being in pain, are often, oh, they're exaggerating. And yet when scientists have done objective measures, they actually find 
Now, generally, women's pain is more intense than men's. That's right. And I think, you know, it's very easy to dismiss women as emotional or hysterical or, you know, being a bit of a soft touch about something. Drama queen. Yes, exactly. But actually, this is real and it's under-researched and it is misunderstood and we really need to focus on it a lot more. Talking about mansplaining, I'll never forget my male obstetrician when I was first pregnant with my first child telling me that actually childbirth really didn't hurt that much. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't convince me. (laughs) Well, he knows. (laughs) It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you, Caroline, and hear about that Steminist book club, which I think is just a little, one of those strokes of genius. Um, So it's a brilliant network and it's wonderful to hear how much sustenance it's also providing because I think what Jane and I understand really, really strongly after so many decades of advocacy is having that fallback and that venting capacity um, and also that motivation from your cohort is so important. It's that thing, isn't it, that Catherine and I have always talked about, the literal meaning of encourage, which is to pass on courage. Absolutely. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts.